Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, we've added another entrepreneur to our entrepreneur series. It's probably somebody that uh, does not have a high profile outside of Prince Edward Island, uh, but uh, Tin Banks has been uh, an entrepreneur for 40 plus years, and um, he has a very significant business in Prince Edward Island. Uh, he's mostly involved in the real estate uh, side of things, and very active in, in the housing market right now, which is obviously important to uh, to uh, Prince Edward Island. And in fact, I think he may be the biggest player in terms of the housing market uh, in the province. Yeah, I mean, he told us he's generating about $100 million a year in revenue between his various companies. He's a founding director of Killam Properties. Uh, so a very uh, a broad-based entrepreneur in the focused on real estate and uh, and housing construction. And I, th- I thought we had a very candid discussion. He, he um, outlined a number of areas of, of concern in terms of the PEI housing market specifically and how to get that moving and get more houses built uh, on the island. So I think the listeners are going to appreciate this uh, conversation. Yeah, Tim is somebody I met. Uh, we served together on the uh, Atlantic Institute of Market Studies. I always found him a very straight shooter, and um, I think our listeners will find that he still is a straight shooter. He, he, you know, he uh, he offers uh, some reservations about the uh, process of uh, getting approvals for projects in, in what uh, Charlottetown has identified as a core area. They've put a boundary around it, and within that boundary uh, area, which is the core of, of Charlottetown, it's very hard to get uh, pro- uh, projects approved, um, you know, they can be derailed very easily by somebody just putting a complaint in and being against it. And, you know, obviously has some frustrations with that current process. And that's something that's going to have to be resolved in Charlottetown, frankly. I mean, they're going to need to have more densification of the downtown. He said that uh, the uh, height of a building in, in that core area can no, be no greater than, I think he said, 39 feet and 10 inches, which I guess is four floors, right? Uh, and, four uh, floors tight, yeah. That's, uh, that's too small, uh, even in a small city like uh, Charlottetown, which is growing very quickly, as we know. Um, they're going to have to find a way to increase the densification of, of that uh, downtown core. Yeah, it's the same problem that all the cities are having, and that is, you know, wanting to maintain some kind of heritage or or smaller town feel, uh, but understanding that if you're going to grow at the rate that Charlottetown's growing, uh, you know, you've got to be able to densify and and build up, and otherwise you get even more uh, 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 sprawl outside uh, outside of the city. He's also working on some other interesting things, a really interesting uh, resort. Uh, a project underway in a place called Grand Tracadie, just a small a small community, uh, but very exciting. Got 100 people uh, already working on the site, as I understand it from our talk. And there's a hotel that's going to open up by July of this year. And these they've got plans for residential units. So so again, another important development, I think, for, uh, for the tourism sector on the island. And he referenced this as kind of a Zeta Cobb uh kind of project for him i mean he has uh, he has an attachment to that area i think his wife is from that area of pei he wants to kind of build a legacy project uh, much like uh, zeta has done in fogel island and you know that's a you know i think he's going to have 68 uh, residential units there 
so that's a big project for Prince Edward Island. And, you know, he's uh, obviously somebody who's still uh, driven to, uh, to succeed, I suppose. And uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting project that he's, you know, he's got the, the hotel part um, opening and uh, I think he has a restaurant too there as well. So, uh, you know, he's already well along the way in terms of getting that development off the ground. Yeah, look, a lot of people like to crap on business people and, and you know, there's a lot of folks that don't appreciate the role that they play in communities. And, and, and um, but, you know, just you'll hear throughout this conversation, he cares a lot about community. He cares a lot about his employees. He cares a lot about philanthropy. And, you know, you can do both. You can be a hard-nosed, tough business person, but also be a good business person. Uh, and be a good community leader, and I think uh, I think that's exactly what uh, what he has been over the last forty years on uh, Prince Edward Island. Yes, it's a great uh, it's a great story, and uh, you know there's a lot of entrepreneurs uh, who fly under the radar in Atlantic Canada who are doing really important things for their province and their communities, and uh, Tim is one of those people. So, with that introduction, here's our conversation with uh, Tim Banks, the CEO of APM. We are pleased to welcome Tim Banks, the CEO of APM in Prince Edward Island, to our Insights Podcast. Tim, welcome to our podcast. Nice to be here, Don, uh, chatting with you, and uh, certainly appreciate the work you two are doing in terms of encouraging and promoting uh, our business community. So, Tim, you've had a long and distinguished business career. Can you tell us about how you got your start in business and a little bit about how you built uh, APM uh, McLean up to where it is today? I got into business mostly by default. Um, I um, Unfortunately, um, my dad died when I was quite young and I, I, had, I left school in uh, grade nine uh, to um, assume my father's service station business and was fortunate enough to to uh, do some work for a, a contractor who was became a client of the service station, and and I ended up, uh, uh, you know, being a I, I don't even know how to explain explain it, but um, he helped me get into uh, uh, taking a GED course uh, to get my high school equivalency. And from there, uh, he got me into Holland College, into construction technology, um, went to work for him for a few years. And uh, um, being just a, a young guy and aggressive in nature, I um, sort of uh, followed my, uh, my automotive business and uh, partnered with a friend into uh, Mechanics Incorporated, a, a business at a Summerside. And uh, then uh, there was a kind of a lull in the construction uh, business in 1980, and uh, I forged out on my own, and uh, I've been at it ever since. It's been around a long time. On your website, you say between the APM and the McLean companies, when you combine those two companies, it's about 95 or close to 100 years of combined experience. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and its main focus as a business? Well, um, I would say uh, 50% of our business is as a general contractor design builder. Um, the other aspects of our business are we're in the paint business, we're in the manufacturing business and the fixtures. Uh, we're into a significant amount of real estate development uh, as it relates to commercial uh, 
rentals and uh, apartments. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the founding directors of uh, Killam Properties uh, in the, uh, out of the Halifax market. And uh, so it lured me into that part of the business. And uh, again, uh, we're involved in a, in a, a number of uh, different enterprises. And we want to find out a little bit uh, about the, the size of your business. Can you tell us uh, how many people you employ, perhaps, and and maybe what uh, the annual payroll would be for uh, for your company? <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess I could answer it like this: We probably have a couple hundred people uh, working uh, within our group, um, and. The payroll, I, I just wouldn't have that at the top of my head. Uh, but um, volume-wise, we're probably, you know, closer to the hundred million dollars a year uh, in um, in revenues and or in construction enterprises and management and so on and so forth. It's a good-sized business for Prince Edward Island. Um, <clears throat> And, and probably among the bigger ones on the island, for sure. Now, you obviously purchase a lot of uh, goods and services in your business. And, and again, we're trying to look at the economic impact of organizations like APM. Do you have an idea how much you might spend on goods and services on the island? Uh, we do, like millions a month, obviously. But uh, there is a, a, a bit of a core within our business. And when I say a core... I always look at our enterprise as being a little dot on the map and we try to work within that dot and expand our circle as we, uh, whether we're working with a sub trade or a supplier or a manufacturer, uh, the closer to home that we can work with someone, the better off we're going to be. And uh, I used to get some kickback from some of my employees because pre-built steel, which is one of our subs, used to be owned by one of our competitors, Williams, Murphy and McLeod. And um, we'd always end up negotiating a lot of work with them. And, and some of my employees would think that we were supporting them and, and uh, we should be working with someone else. But my view of it is, is every dollar that's spent closer to home finds its way back into our enterprise someday by making our, our community stronger. And uh, so I, I've really uh, tried to um, encourage all our, our staff people in terms of going forward to make sure that we always look around within our neighborhood and within our community to work with people. As a general contractor, I assume you have hundreds of employees in your supply chain. Uh, in order to get up to the hundred million in revenue, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, human resources issues. Most businesses are facing some problem uh, with staffing these days, uh, with hiring qualified staff, with with recruiting. A, a lot of companies have um, uh, older staff, and many of them are retiring. What has been your experience uh, recently in hiring qualified people for your business? Um, it's it's a tough one, and we we go through a, a, a number of different routes to to uh, try to you know get people but to get people it's really your historically how good you are to your staff and how you treat your staff and that really helps you in in terms of getting somebody to come on board our biggest competition is government uh, um, 
our employees uh, like to work uh, 30 hours a week or, you know, stay at home or whatever. And um, unfortunately, uh, we, we see a, a lot of uh, mid-management migrate uh, to governments, uh, whether it's federal or provincial or uh, um, just because, and I think they think it's easier. The good news is uh, we've often had some of them come back to our, our business. We never, you know, look at people as being um, held back. Uh, or we never say to them, well, you can't come, come back to our organization. So we, we've found that we've got a better atmosphere than working in government. We never seem to lose people to our peers. Uh, it's, uh, so I, I think that's one of the big things that we find uh, today. Uh, could I just jump in on this question? Because like, this is one of my concerns. And, uh, you know, that, you know, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to com- complete with our, compete with our tax dollars um, uh, for employment. Um, you know, there was at one time governments had the advantage in terms of uh, benefits and pensions and the uh, private sector had the lead in, in, in terms of salaries and wages. Now, the government, governments are very competitive on wages. Uh, they have better benefits, can't compete with them on benefits. And, you know, over 90% of uh, government workers have a mostly defined uh, benefit pension, which is very hard to provide. And, of course, they had the benefit of taxpayer money to fund all that. And, and I just think it's getting harder, Tim, isn't it, to to compete against uh, against uh, governments that are funded by taxpayers. Hundred uh, percent. It's it's very it's a very tough struggle, and uh, we just recently lost an estimator uh, to government, and they lured him into a job that he's not, in our view, uh, not necessarily within his uh, within his training, but. He's got the job and he's not with us any longer. And uh, finding an estimator in today's market is a, is a real challenge. And so we do run into that a lot. One of, one of the things, though, that uh, uh, in order to continue on working with people is we've created a number of things that are different from our competitors. In, um, in our company, we started... From the day I started my business, uh, whether it was one or two people at the outset, um, um, we closed on uh, December 23rd. Uh, we opened on uh, January 3rd. Uh, uh, we paid people for going home. Uh, we told them this is not your vacation. This is a gift that uh, we're giving you uh, as an employee for the, for the work you do for us. We never really, you never really get anything done through the holidays. So that has become an attractive part of coming to work for our group, for APM. Uh, uh, If we're in retail or we're in some other part where we can't actually lock the doors, then we treat that employee just down the road a little bit. Uh, The other thing is we we host one of the, the best Christmas parties ever. Uh, we give out uh, many prizes. Uh, I think this year we gave seven or eight trips uh, whereby uh, we give a gift certificate to employee for $2,500. Uh, they, they get to take a week's vacation. 
They can actually just go home if they want to. There's no prescribed treatment to it, but it's a part of being in our inner group that uh, allows you to to get that extra benefit. Uh, and I think those are the things that um, we have that, you know, make us stand out in terms of an employer, along with a lot of other things. Like we're, we're you know, we always, uh, I can say honestly, I believe that we pay above our peer group. Um, I think that uh, we, we treat people in a very, uh, you know, fair um a fair way in terms of if they're sick or if they've got issues at home or if they need some time off. Uh, uh, I've had to deal with many things in my life and, and as we all do, and you have to respect your employees uh, and you have to treat them that way. So over the last decade or so, uh, Prince Edward has led the country in uh, the attraction of immigrants. We wanted to ask you if you have been hiring newcomers and have you used the Atlantic immigration program and if you have what has been your experience so in general are you uh, have you been hiring uh, newcomers to Canada into the company and what has your experience been I've been doing it for decades um, in our um, I can go way back to our store mark our fixturing business where we had a lot of people from the Philippines coming in, working as tradespeople within our organization. And uh, we've just never, we're, we're quite open. Uh, so when, I, when I'm when i in the office or going around to one of our businesses, uh, uh, I don't know if we, we use a program from Atlantic, whatever you want to call it, but uh, there's just no bias in our mind when it comes to an employee. Quite but open. there has been some challenges getting workers into construction in general. Do you see newcomers getting jobs directly in the construction sector in the trades? It, uh, tough in the trades. I think a bit of that is coming from the, the union uh, organizations, not so much. Uh, that's who we have to call if we're looking for somebody for a carpenter, for example. And, uh, uh, if it's a plumber or electrician, uh, we're hiring a subtrade, and they're they're probably facing the same thing. Uh, uh, so, I, I guess uh, from that perspective, we're just not involved. Uh, um, but in terms of, you know, we're we're pretty heavy in middle management, and in the sense we do a lot of construction management, we do a lot of, you know, design work, uh, and. Uh, we have people from all over the world working for us. Over the last decade or so, the island has led the region in terms of both economic growth and population growth. And of course, those things are closely connected. <laughs> now listen, I, I, it's certainly by default because it's not because of the attitudes of some of the people who sit behind the desks that make things happen. Um, it's... <laughs> I don't know where to really point the finger to whether it's in municipal level or it's, uh, you know, from a, from my perspective of things as a developer, as a guy that wants to well build my community, I, 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 I just never give up. And so like, I have to beat the doors down. We have, we have an institution here called IRAC, which is the Island Regulatory and Appeals Commission. And it's, 
we're, we're such a closed shop here in Prince Edward Island. Uh, you can't come and buy a piece of land. I can't buy a piece of land without having it uh, Iraq involved, and then it has to go to executive council to government for them to, you know, review whether I should be able to buy a piece of land and be. Uh, it's just a real joke. Eh? And then, then you get into this situation where anybody can appeal a project, and you get all these frivolous appeals. And the other side, the the people there that uh, are, you know. My, one of my recent appeals for a, a project in the downtown core that we were doing, an 84-unit, $28 million downtown development uh, in Charlottetown, this lady who's who's appealed, I don't know, 15 or 20, 20 projects, anything that, you know, happens in the downtown, she appeals it. And it, put, it set the project back a couple of years. So now here's what happened. And when we initially went to, to build the project, we had discussed uh, 60 units being affordable under the affordable program. Now we've had go, go back to council. We've had to re, uh, de, uh, we've had to re um, massage our development agreement because we can't deliver the 60 affordable units anymore because the interest rates have gone up 300% and the capital cost has gone up 35%. And, and uh, unfortunately it's, those people are trying to stop these projects that are shooting their mouths off about, you know, where's the affordable housing? And uh, uh, as you can see, I'm a little bit of a, <laughs> I just, anyway, I just, I just look at this as, a, as a, I, th I think people, uh, are starting to understand, and I think with the economic uh, slowdown now, they'll 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 get it even a little more when they see nothing happening. So, yeah, we want to come back to that a little later uh, and talk about some of the projects that you're involved with, Tim. Uh, but I just want to get back to the question about why do you think the island has been so successful, especially over the last decade, in terms of uh, the economic growth side. Number one is we're a very safe community. And I think that people in, in our lifestyle and the ability to you know walk out your door and be in a beach in 15 minutes or be in a small downtown in, in 10 minutes or, or go to the races or the, there's a lot of stuff that we have to offer people within close proximity to one another. And uh, contrary to popular belief, it is pretty affordable to live here. Um, um, and I think that lures a lot of people that, uh, that end up staying here for that reason. The other thing is, is that their growth has been a lot of people move to Ontario or out West or up North uh, and work there for 15 or 20 years. And we see them coming back today. And they're coming back and they're, they're buying a seasonal property and still kind of working back where they, they have been. But their idea is to retire here. And mm. uh, we see it in, in our rental market. Um, um, uh, it, 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 it's a great place to live. Now, the pace of population growth has been perhaps quicker recently than maybe the economy can absorb, particularly in terms of the housing market and, and, and issues like health care. Uh, indeed, in the last year alone, the population grew, I think, 3.7% on the island. That's, you know, 
significant. The pressure is, uh, I think, most felt in, in Charlottetown. Uh, you are personally involved in real estate development, obviously. Let's start with the shortfall between supply and demand. How many housing units are currently being built in Charlottetown and how many are actually needed based on your your understanding of the market? Well, I think, I, I think there's a, a couple of things that are happening. Um, in North America, we have what I believe is called a flight to the core. And what that is, is that in, in large communities, um, people aren't driving as much. Uh, they're moving back into the inner city, into the downtowns. And developers are, are building more accommodations there. It's the exact opposite in the Charlottetown marketplace because they incorporated a 500-lot uh, development zone within like a 10-block radius of downtown. And they put so many restraints in it that you can't build anything. So for every door that's been built as a, as a residential unit in the Charlottetown, greater Charlottetown marketplace, for every one that's been built in the downtown, there's been 28 built above Houston Street. And, and I think the thing about it is, is that the, unfortunately, our councillors and our, our provincial people just don't see what's happening. They, they, they don't understand that uh, to, to build a unit in the downtown core, you have to create a parking stall for it. And to create a parking stall for it is a $60,000 item where out in uh, rural PEI if, or the out in the fringes of the town, it's a $5,000 item. So all of a sudden you're, you're automatically adding you know, fifty to sixty dollars a month to a rental requirement, and it, it, just every aspect of that to to build in the downtown core probably cost you twenty to twenty five percent more per door to build than it does to cost uh, to to uh, build outside of the downtown core. So in PEI, what's happened is we've got this demand for housing. And uh, unfortunately, the restraints on it are coming from trying to get a permit to develop it. And I, I, I've uh, been following Nova Scotia's change in terms of uh, how they've uh, overriding some of the decisions of the municipalities. And I think that the province are going to step, going to have to step in here if they're going to get any growth. But the unfortunate part, part of it is, is any of the investors that were looking to come to to Prince Edward Island are never coming under the current uh, rules. We've got a, a frozen zero percent uh, cap on uh, rental increases, um, and, and uh, at the same time, the province has uh, increased property taxes by uh, our property assessments by five percent. So. Uh, public corporations or investors that previously were here are just not going to get to continue to develop. In fact, I have probably three or 400 units that just you know, won't even go into the ground uh, simply because there's no economics to it. So I think this is going to be a big issue. So just to come back to the, the gap, I, I'm, I'm really trying to understand the gap right now. 
how many units could be built and, and, and would be filled? We could build 1,500 more units in Charlottetown and it wouldn't even, you know, change the needle. Really? Easily. And, and uh, off that, uh, the demographics of that, half them could be, you know, premium rentals. Uh, we have a deficiency in uh, PEI. If you go over to the to uh, Halifax Marketplace and you start to categorize uh, housing, uh, I'd suggest that the Class A housing, which would be underground parking and you know on, another bunch of amenities that would go with a building, you're probably 22 to 24 percent of the marketplace. And in the Charlottetown Marketplace, that same you know, statistic would be around 8%. We have very little underground parking. We have, you know, a, a lot of missing amenities that you have in, in uh, your marketplace. So by default, there's this untapped uh, ability to, to do that. But again, uh, it costs a lot more to develop a unit here. So Tim, historically, uh, it's my understanding that most of the housing on the island and in the Charlottetown area was single-family dwellings or owned properties, but that in recent years has been a much greater demand for rental properties, particularly apartment units. Is that really uh, uh, the trend now on the island, particularly in Charlottetown, Charlottetown area? Is it more about apartment buildings, multi-unit uh, facilities? For sure. Uh, um Again, you know, a lot of it has to do with our transit system. Uh, but the unfortunate part of it is, is that uh, there's nothing being developed within our core. Yeah, I want to come back to that because I have a specific question about the downtown. But I guess Charlottetown in particular is a very, has a very interesting downtown. But I wanted to ask you, if there seems to be some backlash from some of the community, maybe suggesting that newcomers are, are the problem here, but I, I think you're suggesting it's not necessarily the newcomers. It's the fact that the municipality or the provincial government is not allowing this, these developments to occur fast enough or not creating the right environment to um, through, through rental caps and things like that. They've left it in the hands of the municipalities and a, uh, a municipal government leads uh, where they come from. For example, uh, Stratford was on a real growth, uh, like a really growth trend and uh, Cornwall was sort of idling. Cornwall changed uh, councils. Uh, they've got a little more aggressive lands, a little cheaper out there. Uh, it's probably growing faster than any other part of Prince Edward Island. And it, it's a bedroom community. And, uh, and the growth really stems from the ease within the, the ability of a developer to come forward and get something done. Uh, in, in terms of my community, um, if I go over to Halifax and, uh, you know, we could find 50 developers, my scale that would be doing things come to my marketplace. There's no, I don't have any competitors. Um, I, <laughs> I was ready to sue the city of Charlottetown and I was just like, I was getting really frustrated one day and I, I went to, uh, I went down to speak to Jim Travers, who's my uh, uh, lawyer. And uh, he, he said to me, look, Tim, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of, I kind of sat back and I thought, oh, well, but you know what? 
I love competition and I, I'd hope four or five guys from Halifax come in here and, and, and get aggressive because we, we need, uh, we, we need somebody, you know, uh, stoking the fire here because I just can't be the guy raising my hand all the time and saying, look, we got to be doing something. So coming back to the downtown, Charlottetown does tend to be, it seems to be a low rise community. There doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in building buildings over a certain height. And I don't know if that's right in the municipal regulations or not, the bylaws, but um, we'd like to talk a little bit about the downtown core. How can we get more densification in the city, more people living downtown? You talked earlier about the higher cost of things like parking. Uh, but just like the rest of Atlanta, Canada, we're seeing it in Halifax and Moncton, for example, seeing, seeing a ton of new apartment buildings right in the downtown. How, how do we make that happen in Charlottetown? Well, you, you say Moncton and you say Halifax, but look at communities like Truro. I think there's five buildings being built in the downtown core. But in Charlottetown, they don't want them any higher than 39 foot 8 inches. So, you know, it, uh, nowadays... Uh, used to be a time when your ceiling height in a in a place was eight feet but you know you got kids that are running around town they're six foot six now and so a lot of units have gone to nine feet because that's the requirement that you know people are looking for and uh we're still stuck with 39 foot uh, eight inches in terms of height and it's i guess they I don't know. They, I, I think they think they're taller. They can't see over the top of them. Uh, it's uh, pretty parochial in terms of uh, their thinking, and it really boils down to that they that a city is directed by its official plan, and the official plan is the statement that people come together and they they develop uh, an official plan, and you know, the fortunate part of it. In your market in Halifax, there was a guy by the name of Ben McRae. And, uh, you know, he's one of my heroes. If I mentioned his name, uh, if I mentioned his name in uh, Charlottetown, nobody would know who in the hell he was. But I know who he was. He was the guy that, you know, basically kick-started the, you know, the, the, the new development in the downtown core of the Halifax marketplace by beating, you know, the Heritage Board, uh, by, you know, standing still and doing nothing until they got out of his road and look at what's happened. And uh, we're, we're basically the same way in Charlottetown. It's just these crazy, stupid people that believe that there's some kind of market that comes from, you show me, like I, I keep telling people, you know, take a, take a, a survey of the number of people that go into the the cow store in downtown Charlottetown and then go to the visitor's book at the heritage museum that they have in the downtown called Beaconsfield. And I'll tell you that it's 10 to one, uh, that go into the cow store and, uh, uh, and they're all tourists and are people that come in and spend money within our downtown core. But if you go out to the causeway where they built a bigger cows development, they're doing 20 to one to our downtown core. You know, heritage doesn't sell anything. I want to talk a little bit about the development uh, approval process on the island. Uh, how does it compare to other jurisdictions in the region? Um, well, so, so basically what you have is all of the, the smaller municipalities have their own bylaw officer or whatever. 
and there's no consistency in any community. So you'd have to be a magician to be able to go in and interpret it, each of them. There's no, you know, kind of set rule. In, in Charlottetown, unfortunately, they've got a set of bylaws that have designated the downtown different from the other part of the community, and they've really restricted development there. So it, it, it's um, to compare it to uh, getting a permit in, in uh, downtown Halifax to downtown Charlottetown, probably got more paperwork to do in Halifax, but the appetite for it to get done by the people that you're working with isn't very positive. And it, you can actually get to an end uh, and actually secure a permit. In Charlottetown, you go through that whole process and you fight your way through it. You're, you're battling from the moment you, you walk in the door. And then when you do finally get that permit, it goes to this foolish appeal process that just stops you in your tracks because, uh, you know, is your lender going to, like, risk the ability that you could be overturned. And then that process is a process that just doesn't cost the appellant anything. Uh, tell me about the areas of the approval process that you think uh, could be improved or streamlined in your opinion. What are the, what are the key things that have to change? I, I, it's hard for me to just singularly point that out. I, I think that, I think what there should be is a, a, an undertaking. Um, so if, if a developer went into a community and uh, signed a binding uh, undertaking that uh, he's going to start this project and, and gave them the design scheme, and as long as it followed the rules that the contractor could proceed subject to providing all these you know, initial things that would have to come along with it uh, so that you could fast track projects that would probably work a little better. But the way it works here in PEI, they could give you, they have the ability in Charlottetown to actually give you a foundation permit and you can actually go and build a foundation. But then the next permit they give you for the superstructure can then be appealed at IRAC. It's just like this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's, What's the point of getting the first step if the second step can be appealed? So I guess if you ask me the question is once somebody gives you that development permit, you know, you shouldn't have to have the consequence of having to uh, show up in front of a quasi judicial board. You know, it'd be a different thing if you went, at least if you had to go down to the court and uh, establish your you, that you've met the rules, you, you've got a, a little better chance. But when you're in front of a tribunal that can say anything, whatever they want to say, then, you know, it's a pretty risky thing for a developer. Um, I wanted to turn to the issue of Blackbush, your new resort development that's in the works in Grand Trackety uh, on the island. <laughs> it's being promoted as a $60 million development. Can you tell us about your plans for Blackbush and where you are in that process? Sure. Uh, and I went like this. That's where I'm shooting myself in the head. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually quite excited about it. So Grand Trackety is a very small little community in the North Shore of Prince Edward Island. Uh, people would 
probably on their way to Dalvey, which is a, an old uh, hotel that's in, in the immediate area, uh, they would recognize the community. It has a little ball field in, in the middle of the community. Back in the uh, 1800s, it was a pretty prosperous little community. Uh, in, I think, 1862, there was a hotel built there called the Lorne Hotel. And uh, unfortunately, in 1906, it was burnt to the ground. And I think there was like 95 people within the, within the hotel. Uh, that hotel spurred uh, a number of uh, spin-offs to it in terms of uh, it was a place where people from actually the U.S. sailed up for their summers to hunt and fish and beach and, and uh, use as a health resort. Uh, uh, the guy that actually built Dalvey, uh, who was a, a partner with uh, Rockefeller in uh, uh the oil business, uh, he uh, built this big estate. Uh, there's two or three others that were built there. They they actually stayed at this hotel and enjoyed the area so much they they invested here. And, uh, and uh, by 1930, it kind of all kind of fell through and the community uh, just, it had two or three lobster. It had a cannery, a lobster factory. It had a a bunch of other things. The only thing that was really left at the end of the day was, you know, one small farm within the community that uh, is, is still there. But uh, short of that, there was no business enterprises. Uh, so in the early 1900s, it was a very prosperous community. Um, they had a nickname, they called it Grand Tragedy. And then the beach down uh, where uh, my, my wife and I have our summer home, uh, they filmed, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of the show, but it was uh, Pogi Beach, I guess is the name of it. So uh, um, I just thought uh, uh, through the years, I just kept thinking to myself, what could I do? I had acquired all this property. Uh, I subdivided it and I, you know, debate was whether to really do anything with it. And finally, uh, I just got to the point where I felt that it was time to do something. And uh, we we started a couple of years ago into this, uh, this um, I guess it's a dream, but uh, what it really is and is an investment in my community. It really came from following the, the Zeta Cobb over in uh, Fogo Island and seeing what she was able to do within that community. And I thought, my God almighty, we could do that in spades. Uh, we're 25 minutes from everywhere. Uh, in, in our, uh, we're next door to the national park. We have miles of beaches. We, we have, you know, lots of activities you can do in the winter time. And we don't really have a winter resort on Prince Edward Island. So, um, I, uh, started working on a, a hotel concept. Uh, we, it spurred on, uh, we're, we're now going to have two restaurants. We're going to have a, a fish market. We're going to have a ice cream, uh, uh, station. Um, uh, we have a spa, we have, uh, 68 uh, residential units that are going to be built on the property as well. Uh, and uh, so it's turned into, uh, and where are we? 
we're hoping that the hotel uh, is going to uh, open um, probably July 17th of this year. Uh, a lot of stuff, uh, you know, we're probably eight to 10 months behind because of procurement issues. And we're still facing some of those issues. Our, for example, our windows, we've been really uh, uh, invested in this, uh, in a, a social uh, sustainable enterprise. And so it's all about energy in the building. We're doing a biomass facility to, to operate it. Uh, so a lot of things are new to us as well. And uh, we have to continually revisit uh, what we're doing each day. And uh, so there's been, there's been changes. And uh, we hope at the end of the day that we're going to uh, have a very appealing year-round uh, development that's going to foster uh, uh, jobs for the community, for youth, uh, and uh, have people invest within the community. To my surprise, uh, uh, the province has been very on board with us. To my surprise, uh, the community, and it shouldn't have been a surprise to me, the community of Grand Trackety has been, been just real strong supporters and I should have known this because when when I first moved there 30 some years ago with my summer place uh, I had a boat out front and uh, it it lost its mooring and I was away in business in Nova Scotia and, and some fishermen went and got it and they took it back and then uh, another time uh, I got a note up at my cottage in the back door that something happened to my skiff uh, you, could, you don't have to lock your doors in this community. It's, it's just a nice place. And, uh, and I think they see what this investment's going to do too. So pretty excited about it. Um, that's good news. I, I've always wondered if it was the advent of air conditioning that killed uh, this region as a tourist hub. If you think of Campobello, if you think of St. Andrews, and of course what you just described, a lot of Americans trying to get up here to beat the heat uh, in the summer. And then when, when air conditioning came along, the, a lot of these projects kind of fell through. But uh, anyway, that's good news. Do you have any sense of what the economic impact will be in the community? You've, you've talked about it, but it, obviously it's going to be one of the big, if not the largest economic driver in the area. Well, uh, to our surprise, our, our restaurant, which is basically a takeout or Finn uh, folk food, uh, uh, we had 42 people employed there this summer. And we we blew our minds in terms of uh, uh, of our sales and the, the visitations. And uh, I anticipate uh, when we're done here, we'll have a hundred full time people working uh, on the site in a in a very small community. And the the impact and tourism uh, coming back into our community. Uh, if you look at uh, Port Hood and see what uh, Cabot Cliffs have done to the region in terms of the values of the properties and the, 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 the spinoff there, I anticipate we'll, we're going to see a lot of that in, in the community where, where Grand Trackety is. And um, my, my wife was born there. Uh, and uh, we're pretty excited about being able to do something. We've always been uh, supporters within the community. And um, again, uh, same with my business at APM. Uh, it's, it's all about 
uh, you know, it's one thing to have a business and it's another thing to, to, you know, be employed by it, but you have to give back too. If you, if you're lucky enough to be where you are, that somebody got you there and it's, it's usually people have supported you. And so in turn, you have to turn around and support them. Just a quick follow-up. Uh, we have a few questions left to, to ask, but on, on the, uh... Blackbush uh, development's being promoted as socially responsible resort that is both environmentally and economically sustainable. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Well, uh, my summer home that uh, we built there back in, you know, we, we moved on to the property in the mid 80s and uh, I had a paved driveway or uh, road uh, down to my summer home. And I had it all paved because I didn't want to get my cars dusty or dirty. <laughs> and so uh, last year, uh, we had uh, one of the paving companies come in and pulverize all that uh, asphalt uh, and turn it into to back into gravel so that uh, the water resource within the site, as uh, opposed to um, the water just, uh, washing off and going into ditches and ending out into the harbor now becomes groundwater. It's that whole, our gate system that used to go into our property was all mechanical, uh, all electrical. Uh, now it's all back to a new gate system that's going to be manual. And whether it will be gated or not will deal with issues related to storms. It'll be an open enterprise going forward. The, the uh, hotel itself, uh, again, uh, the, the heating system is a, a biomass plant, uh, and uh, we have 134 acres on our site. Uh, we'll be producing some of our own wood chips, and we'll be replanting as we, as we do that. Uh, so again, uh, we're, we're doing all kinds of things that... Uh, traditionally wouldn't be done. Uh, it's increased uh, our capital cost. Uh, even though we have an elevator within the building, the elevator is a, is a low carbon hydraulic elevator as opposed to, you know, one of these efficiency high energy elevators. The both ends of our stairwells were traditionally in a hotel, you know, if you take the stairwell, you walk down a concrete kind of corridor of whatever you want to call it in our case the quality of our two uh our two um, stairwells from right from the lower level right to the upper level of the building are all being finished the same way as our hallways are and then as opposed to you know doing the stairwells uh, uh, as enclosed where there's no lighting in them. We have at every half level, we have large windows so you get view planes, which encourages people to, to, to walk as opposed uh, uh, to using elevators. So every aspect of, of the hotel uh, uh, we're looking at and we're doing the best we can. Uh, you know, we're not going to, if people want to tell you that, uh, we're going to be net zero. I don't think there's ever going to be a net zero. I think they're going to be near net zeros and you're going to be net zero ready, but whether buildings will be net zero will be, will be uh, a tough one. 
So uh, you've talked about some of your uh, apartment uh, complexes, your, your residential development. You've talked about the, this resort. Is there any other big projects you're involved in these days? Well, uh, from our company perspective, we're uh, actually managing the new uh, uh, school in Sherwood, uh, PEI, which is another community with inside the, the, the city. Uh, it's a pretty significant uh, school project, and it is uh, uh, um, one of the first net zero schools in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we've recently been awarded the uh, management of the new school in Stratford. Uh, uh, again, uh, another exciting uh, project. Uh, we're going into the ground on a new uh, affordable uh apartment complex in uh, Summerside that's 89 units, uh, 50 of which is affordable housing. On that same site, uh, we uh, donated uh, land to the, the, the city of Summerside, who in turn have uh, massaged it to the province, and they're building a $23 million health center on that site. And there's also going to be a new fire hall and uh, so that's all part of our, our uh, development that we're doing up there. Uh, we have a lot of commercial, uh, small enterprise projects uh, that we we have underway that are pretty, you know, our kind of bread and butter work that we do. Uh, however, uh, we can always do more. And uh, uh, again, unfortunately, we we have uh, some projects that. Uh, one in the downtown core that we're still trying to figure out how to how to pour our footings simply because of interest rates uh, getting some pressure on them. Uh, so we've got to see how that works. Although there's a good, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of naive people when you get into a planning meeting. Well, a business is not a charity. Of course, the businesses are, are meant to make, uh, make profit, but... There are charitable causes, and we wanted to ask you if you have any charitable, particular charitable causes that you focus on uh, on the island. Well, we do lots of stuff. Um, the Nature Conservancy of Canada is one of my own personal ones that are, are big. Uh, we do a lot with uh, the Kidney Foundation. Uh, uh, we have a uh, we inst- we started a new thing, the Twelve Days of Christmas, that uh, we. Uh, announced a couple of years ago and basically what we we do is we earmark some money uh i think this year was around seventy five thousand dollars and we send that out to our staff uh, for example in our paint business house of excellence uh, uh, they get to designate their staff get to designate how four or five thousand dollars of that money can be spent back into our community uh in addition to that uh uh, we've been big supporters uh, over the years. I, I think we gave over a million dollars to the Confederation Center of the Arts. Uh, I've left somebody else to to continue on there, and we've moved some of our money, uh, a lot of it now, towards uh, environmental uh, efforts. We gave $50,000 to Ronald McDonald House in Halifax for their new construction Um and there's all kinds of those kinds of things that we do. Uh, we're not looking to find more. We have trouble, uh, you know, uh, sending letters out to some people. We just can't do everything. Eh? 
Tim, the final question is really related to uh, uh, your transition plan for your business. You've been in business more than 40 years. Do you have any family members in, in, in your business? What's, what's your plan? Um, succession? PEI has migrated to the mainland. And what I mean by that is, uh, unfortunately, I could name 100 businesses that uh, have been bought up by somebody else. Uh, I'm hoping that's not the destiny of my business. Uh, I took some time off a uh, num- number of years ago thinking that maybe I should retire and maybe I should whatever. And I just wasn't happy at it. So you know, I'm just going to continue along, and at the end of the the day, I I, I guess I hope my employees take over my business. Uh, uh, there's no succession plan within my family. I have a son who works at our paint business. My other son uh, is uh, lives in Ottawa. He's a correctional officer, uh, and uh, hopefully he'll come home someday. I, I doubt it. He's in Spain this week with a tattoo, so. Uh, Anyway, uh, but uh, I'd give him the business tomorrow morning. He's, he's uh, kind of sharp, but uh, again, uh, I owe it to my employees first. So, Tim, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast and telling us about your company and the interesting projects that you're working on and giving us some insight into how we can uh, develop a, a better housing situation and, and encourage more housing investment, uh, particularly on Prince of Island. So thank you again for joining us. And I really appreciate it, David and Don, and uh, all the best. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.